Today we're going to continue the second week. And it's not really a sermon series per se, but they were kind of connected. Um, and I think I told you the difference was that, that, that this felt deeply personal to me for many reasons. Not that, you know, but really some things that God kind of hit me right in the face with about how we act as the church, like how we, you know, what we're called to do. And last week we talked about this idea of being strengthened by grace. I don't know if you were here for that or not, but there's this idea that is all over Scripture that God has poured grace upon grace on us, right? That's what the Scripture says. We've been blessed with grace upon grace upon grace. That, and he demonstrates that. And as the church, and I mean the big C church, we have a tendency to withhold grace from one another, right? Um, and we, we run kind of all different banners about why we do that. We say, well, it's for your good that we, I won't be graceful with you. Or, you know, we have all these things. But the truth is that um, part of the job of the church is to make make his grace known. And it's radical to me that as those who received, as the scriptures say, grace upon grace, that we would then withhold that grace from others. It's just a mind-blowing concept. As a matter of fact, it's one of those things that why wouldn't we, as the people of God, share grace? What is it? And we talked about that last week. If you missed it, you can check it out. It's on our website. But why would we withhold grace? Is there any good reason to withhold grace from others? We talked about that last week. You know, some good things to think about. Um, and this week, we're going we're to talk um, kind of a continuation of that thought. And originally, I was thinking like this kind of grace and mercy thing. But then I started thinking, well, what is the church supposed to be known for? And, and, and it became very obvious very quickly what the church should be known for. Um, I'm not sure. Or I should say, let me say this again. I use two words interchangeably, by the way. Church and Christians. And so when I'm saying what should the church be known for, I don't mean like the little C church, the local church like Family Bible Church or other churches. I mean, what should Christians, that's the big C church, be known for in the world? What's the biblical principle here? Okay? And um, it's interesting because if you ask people those two questions, they'll answer differently. If you say, well, what's the church known for? They'll answer usually, you know, maybe about buildings or about the Pope or, or about, you know, um, these organizations that we have. They'll answer in some way like that. Few people will answer the question, what's the church um, supposed to be known for, as though it's about the people. Hardly anyone will do that, which is, but that's what the Bible says the church is, the called out one. It's the ecclesia, right? But then there's the other question. So if you ask people, well, what are Christians known for? I bet, and I, I, sh- I would have liked to have done this, but I bet you would get a, just a smattering of answers of what Christians are known for, right? Um, some might say, well, Christians are known for holiness, you know? Um, some might say that Christians are known because they want others to become Christians. Like, that's the, that's the functional purpose of being a Christian is to make other Christians. There's nothing else that we would be known for. Um, some people would say that we are known for going to church on Sundays, and that's it. So that's what Christians are known for. They go to church on Sundays. Isn't that funny? Again, you hear the language there that you go to church, the ecclesia that you are. Some might say, the church is known for, for being, I don't know, hateful. That's how some people interpret um, what the church stands for, what Christians stand for. Um, some might say, I mean, there's just all these things. Oh, here's a good one. Um, some might say the church is known for being hypocritical. Do what I say, not what I do, right? That's, I remember that for me was a big one. Uh, I, thought, I, I thought a lot of hypocrites in the, in the church or the Christians I knew were hypocritical. Um, what, what, what is it? What should it? What should the church be known for? And uh, so we're going to talk about today, you know. And I don't know for you, like, what, sh- what are Christians known for? Or here's the real question today, because we can do that kind of 
theoretical stuff all day about what others think. But here's the main question today, I guess, is that as a Christian in the church of Jesus Christ, what do I want to be known for? Right? That's a different question. What am I, what am I going to intentionally live out that I might be known for? Or has God said what that should be. So I'm going to ask that we would pray like we always do, um, that God would uh, help us to understand his word if we get into it this morning, and that he would bless us, whatever we're coming from, wherever we're at in our lives, that he has a divine appointment to teach us something in this time, in this place. Uh, Join me in prayer if you will. Father God, we thank you so much for the ability to come to you right now and to worship you. We say those words like it's, it's so throwaway, but to worship you, to sing your praises because you are glorious and worthy to be worshiped. And Father, the truth is that all of our lives, you, were de- you deserved our worship. All of our lives now, you still deserve our worship and praise. And Father, I pray that this morning as we've come into your house, we've come to bless you, um, that we've come to honor you in this time. And Father, we thank you so much for your divine revelation to us, that you show us who you are through all the things we've talked about today already, um, through your creation, through your word, through your relationship, through your Holy Spirit's intercession on our behalf. You draw us to yourself. And, and uh, indeed, you do it while we're, we're still far from you and ignoring you. And for that, we give you praise and thanks. We pray now as we um, come into your word to, to, to understand what you want us to be as Christians, who you want us to be, that you would reveal that truth to us, that we would find in your word wisdom this morning for our lives, and that indeed we would leave um, uh, changed because of encountering you. Only you can do that work. And we wait upon you for it to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you this was a, a deeply um, personal thing. And the, the part of the reason was, and I told you this last week a little bit, but uh, um, I've, been setting, I've been setting with some people, and I, that's why I realized about my grace was kind of running out with people last week. But, and not last week, I mean, it's been happening. And then I started to think, well, whenever people come and they kind of make accusations against Christians or against the church, does it also apply to me? Does it apply to me as well? You'll remember at the end of the series, the 13th chapter of Hebrews, where it kind of has all this smattering of stuff thrown up there, one of the admonitions or encouragements that Scripture has for us is that we would continue in brotherly love. Do you remember that? Um, Or continue to love one another as brothers and sisters, written to believers in the church, right? Um, And that's a striking thing. We talked about that a little bit, like for a minute, but moved on. When I started to reflect upon what uh, God would um, have us to to consider as what defines the church, that became uh, the statement. I want to share with you from John chapter, let's see where we're at here, 13, verses 34 and 35. This is Jesus speaking here. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one off the, the chair row near you. You should be able to find a Bible there. And this is what the Word says. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this, At a new command I now give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And that, that verse we probably heard before, that we're, we're called to love one another. But isn't it radical that Jesus says a few things here, and one of the things he says is, this is, this is how you'll be known as my disciple, 
that they will know you because you love one another. It's the same idea that was shared with us in 13 to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters or to allow, which is an interesting word, to not intentionally stifle love in the family of God, to allow love to continue to um, be among us. And so um, Jesus here has the same idea. He commanded, in fact, us to love one another. Look at what the word says in verse 34. A new command I give you. He wasn't like a new suggestion, a new opportunity, a new option for you. He's like, no. Here's a new command. Love one another. And I wonder, like, what happened before that? Was, was there no obligation to love one another? I mean, was it enough to say, well, I love God and that's enough? You think about stories from the uh, New Testament where Jesus engages people of the Jewish faith who thought that was enough. I love God. I don't have to love anybody else. And... As a matter of fact, the crazy thing is, if you fast forward 2,000 years to Christians walking around all around us, they'll say the exact same thing now. I love Jesus. I don't have to love anybody else. And then we read his words, a new command I give you, love one another. It's, it's, isn't that wild? But how many of us think, well, we don't, we don't have to. Wait, by this, all men, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, I want to walk into a, a little bit of an explanation here. Someone, we were talking last week, I said, it's so funny, I use these crayon artwork stuff, you know, and I said, did it connect at all? And people were like, I have no idea, right? Last week we had our artwork was kind of like, um, if you were here, it was like a, a, a picture in a coloring book. Do y'all remember coloring when you were kids? We talked about this before, Family Bible, I know. Do you remember like the first day of school you get the new box of crayons? Yeah? Do you remember that? Do you remember, do you remember getting the, uh, what'd you get? Like, was it like 24? How many are in there? 64? Huh? 64? Is that, with the sharpener? That one, that was a, that was more than, is that more than 64? Was that 128? Was there a, do you remember, do you remember going to school and they would say, hey, you need, um, you need a box of crayons. I'm a, this is going to be a little confessional, right? And you would bring in your box of crayons and then you would realize that other people had bigger boxes of crayons. Did anybody have that experience? And somebody like my wife had a sharpener. I didn't have a sharpener in my crayon box. No, I might have. I'm, I act like I'm all abused. I wasn't, but, you know. Man, that big box, remember, you just, you'd open it. And, and then they, this is funny, by the way, but um, all the crayon colors up here. You, the funny thing is that you remember that they started having to make up names for the crayons because the colors, you know, Roy G. Bibb doesn't work anymore. So it's like, you know, I don't even know. I can't make up any good ones, but you know, it was like these kind of goofy, you know. I still know what fuchsia is, by the way, for real. Like, I don't know what fuchsia is. When people say fuchsia, I don't know what that looks like. But so they had to put like two word descriptions on crayons because there were so many in the box because somebody needed that kind of a combination of colors to make art. Well, anyway, that's kind of how the, the thing starts, right? And then you're given the box of crayons, and then you're given pre-printed sheets, right, with lines on it of drawings that are things you recognize, a puppy dog, right, or um, uh, our artwork last week was a kitty cat or something like that. And then they give an untrained human being these crayons, and they say, have fun. So you have fun, right? And you start coloring, and you're just going to town, man. And you're like, purple is cool, and you're like, green... You know, and then your whatever other color, you know, um, fuchsia. You start color fuchsia. And only the people who are going to be like future interior decorators did that. But, and then you, you uh, make a mess, usually. 
Like if you're left to your own devices, you're just going to color all over that. The lines don't mean anything to you. Last week we talked about grace was the idea that in the middle of that, someone comes and they go, no, 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 no. You don't do it that way. As a matter of fact, here's a funny thing, right? We raise children ourselves. We said the same. No. Color in the, let me show you how you color properly. <laughs> so I'm off topic here, but you know, you go back all those years in the kindergarten, you're like, I'm going to be a good colorer, <laughs> you know, and you're showing your kids, this is how you, look how I can shade that in. Look at that. You see the shape. I got the shape of the tree here by making it darker on the edges. You do all this stuff to train our children to color in the lines. And um, when they mess up, we're not always very graceful, right? Because someone put lines on the paper and they screwed it up. That doesn't, there's no purple dog, right? There's no green cats. So we kind of do that to each other. Well, that, that was last week, and that was kind of cool, this idea of grace. Well, this week we were talking, and I don't know if you have your engagement sheet in your hand this morning or not, but t- this morning there's no lines, right? It's just kind of this creative process. And I, wonder, I say all that, um, which is a bit of a tangent, but I say all that because I do want to say something about this idea of um, freehand drawing versus coloring a pre-printed picture. I mean, we act like it's quite, we act like it's quite an achievement to follow a pr- pr- mass-produced line. Like, wow, look how talented we are. We can follow a line. Uh, so much of our lives are that way. Just stay in the lines. Don't, don't do anything else. Don't be radical. Don't think. Just stay in the lines. But there's this other side of having crayons that's very creative, very beautiful, and, and sometimes more difficult. Because while unconstrained, you have to decide what you're going to demonstrate as beauty or glory. Um, you, I don't know if you noticed, noticed it, but... And, so how we show love as the church, like what we're called to do when we show love to others. I don't know if you noticed it, but the thing that struck me was the, in the artwork today is the rainbow. Do you see that on there on your engagement sheet? Someone has created a rainbow with all the colors. You have more than on the screen a minute ago that we had. All the colors have been created. And the bummer for me about the rainbow is that people who have found themselves or felt they found themselves outside of the... Um, moral structure have claimed the rainbow, right? And specifically, it's been claimed for sexual desires, um, this kind of all-encompassing thing. And, and I say that to you not to bring up like this, oh, this hot topic, but isn't it crazy, and it drives me nuts, that, that this um, beautiful rainbow created by God has kind of been repurposed to make um, a political point, really, almost. Before we go too far down that road, though, I want to say, well, how do we respond to people who are far from God? Um, How do we create um, art that shows his glory, his beauty? See, why it drives me so crazy is because there's something in the rainbow that is glorious, that is God-honoring. And uh, the funny thing, and I'm going to say this one, and I want to step back into Genesis and look at Genesis real quick, but this one thing is that um, you, someone would come to you as a Christian, and they will say, you don't have a right to make a moral argument, right? Don't tell me about your morals. But this whole conversation about who's in and who's out, and who can do what, and who's loved and who's not, and who's, you know, good and who's bad, is a moral argument. That's the argument being made, right? That's the exact conversation that's being had is now, wait a minute, uh, we are included also. We have a place. And, you know, the rainbow is used. I want to share with you from Genesis, because this is, and maybe it doesn't bother you at all, but isn't it funny, like, like um, the rainbow in our current culture, um, and we're going to come back around this later, but 
Listen to what the word says. This is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 12. You don't have to turn there. Just hear the word. You probably know this. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant, that's the promise, that I'm making between me and you, and listen to this, every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I may set my rainbow in the clouds, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the promise between me and the whole earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my promise between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. And never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting, that's permanent, y'all, promise or covenant between God and all the creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all the earth. This beautiful concept, right? And so I still have to say that there is some truth to the person who says, hey, what about me? That God's like, yeah, you. I made a promise to all of you. It, you know what it says? It says even all the creatures. It doesn't just say all the people. Like God made a covenant with all creation, now, some of you are Bible scholars. You're going to say, well, that, that was just the flooding, not the rest. That was just the flooding. I understand that. But not to destroy us, because remember what the problem was, that the sinfulness of man had risen up to such a degree that was such a stench coming from the earth, from the people he created, the creations being destroyed. No one respects anyone or loves anything and, and just consumes it. And the stench had reached God's nostrils, and he's offended by his creation. And he decided to start over. And if you live on the same planet I do, man, I feel like that still is the case. That we don't, like, respect or love. That we don't walk in, in this place of understanding our right position with God. And so because of that, man, this rainbow is a huge deal. God will never. We were driving just this week, and we saw one off in the distance. It's like, oh, do you remember God's promise to us to not destroy us? Because of our filth and our stench. Well, that's Old Testament though, right? Jesus says the church, white, will be known because they love one another. If you're still there, look with me in John again. A new command I give you, love one another. Here's the principle. As I have loved you. So you must love one another. The disciples who were hearing this had seen Jesus walk amongst them, had seen him sit with them in their sin and brokenness, right? Had seen him violate all these boundaries that have been created over the centuries by um, God-fearing men and women. He had transgressed these things. He had entered in. And already, before the cross here, already... Jesus' demonstration of love would have been almost impossible to follow for those who he called friends. But that's what he says. As I have loved you, so you must, must love one another. It's a radical call. But then 35 says this. This is how you'll be known as my disciples if you love one another. I say that because just like in Hebrews where we heard it before, um, it seems that we have a decision to make. Are we going to choose to love one another? First question, you can say, well, I, I, can't, I can't love others. Well, can you love brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's hard, too. I can love a few or a couple. I can love my family or I can love my spouse or I can love my parents. But beyond that, no promises, right? If 
you choose to love one another, you will be known as my disciples. That's what Jesus said. Of course, we throw this away in language. We say, well, if you only remember how Jesus loved you, then you would love others. Like, that's maybe the journey we take as Christians is we are sinners far, far from God. And then he calls us into his kingdom. He invites us in, and we feel the blessing of his mercy, his grace, and his love, and we celebrate that. And then as we begin to hang out with other Christians, God help us, right? I'm being honest here. We begin to become more rigid, and there are obviously lines, and we begin to draw distinctions and then we begin to close people out and we begin to be afraid of others and then we begin to stop loving and it's just this kind of gradual process toward one day you're like you read a scripture you're like what am i doing i am your disciple i want to be known for love interesting by the way that um, i said all these arguments are moral arguments and the funny thing is that that's how you win the argument is if you're on the side of love if you can convince others this is what love looks like what do you think about us as Christians? Or what do you think about you? Do, you? do you think that when others experience a relationship with you that they feel loved? That they, hey, you might not like the word feel. Do, 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 you, do, they, do you love them? Do you just tolerate them? <laughs> I mean, can't wait to get away. Love's more than that. Do you sacrifice yourself? You know what I mean? Does it cost you something? Do you, I love the picture on the engagement sheet of the crayons. Do you wear yourself, wear yourself out like that? Big, flat, nubby end. You don't have the points anymore. You're all worn down. It's costing you a lot. Taking off material. See, this seems to be the higher call of Christ as his disciples to love one another, to love others, so that they might know that you actually believe the good news that you share. They might actually know that I believe the good news that I share. Yeah, God loves you that much. See, that's the truth of coming to know Jesus as Savior, is that God loves you that much. Something to think about, how we are known or how you are known. I want to then ask the question, well, what should um, our love look like? And this is funny because uh, in all my time at Family Bible Church, I had a series called More Like Love, and that series got me in more trouble than any series I've ever preached at this church, which is funny, because you would think love would be a great thing to talk about. But uh, that series was crazy, crazy, crazy. If you look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verses uh, 7 through 19, we're not going to cover all that. We're going to start in 16, actually, and kind of jump around a little bit. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 16, this is what the word says. This is, by the way, the letter that John wrote to the church. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. That, that's a statement he's making about those who know Jesus as Savior. So, and so we do know, right? We know God, and we know the love that he has for us, verse 16. And we rely on the love that God has for us. And then here is the first kind of thing. God is love. This isn't the only place it's said in Scripture, by the way, um, but that's the equation that's done. God is love. Like, that's the reality. John fleshes us out. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him, right? So there's an encouragement, and the word it could be abide. Abide feels a little more normal for me, like to dwell inside, to exist in that space, to know that intimacy, and so we are invited to walk into that space to experience the Father. But the way we do it is because we know his great love, right? 
I said earlier, remembering back to the overwhelming reality that you are saved by his love and grace. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. That's the implication here. So there's this idea that the closer we are, that the more we recognize that God is love and we walk in that way, God is living in us. 17. I don't mean it's like, by the way, God lives in us when we believe the gospel through the Spirit. I just mean that we experience the reality of that. Verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Or, another translation says, in this way, God's love is perfected in us. I'll remind you again, he's talking to the church. So to the degree that you choose to go and engage and in, in experience and dwell in the love of God, the love that he has for his people, the love that he's lavished on us in Jesus Christ, to the extent that you choose to live in that space is the extent to which love is perfected in us. In this way, verse 17, love is made complete or perfect among us. It's one of the other markers of what our love looks like. It's becoming more perfect, not less so, right? And then it says, will give us confidence on the day of judgment, it will give us confidence in the day of judgment. So the more we love others, the more we truly enter in that space. And I'm talking like, like free style here, you know, like cre- creation space, like blank sheet stuff. The more we enter into that space with God in the name of Jesus Christ, the more confidence we have for the, the day of judgment. That's interesting to me as well. I'm just going to ask this question, and it's an experiential question, but I'm really wrestling with this because there are times where I enter into conversations with others about Jesus, and I feel like I've said all the right things, I've given all the, all the proper answers, and I feel comfortable with that. But when I leave the conversation and get back into my own life with the Lord, and I'm talking or I'm praying, or I'm, I wouldn't say it always brings more confidence for me in a day of judgment. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes I'll interact with someone who thinks they feel they're far from God, and, and I will interact in a way that's very kind of factual. Here it is. Here's the truth. Bang, bang, bang. And I know we need that. I need that, right? I don't get a lot of that, but I, I need that. Here's the truth. Da-da-da-da. Push back, right? But in the end, in my quiet time, I'm like, wow. That, I almost would say it makes me more fearful of judgment. Well, Bill, if, if that's your standard, then you got a lot of living up to do. And I'm not saying there's no standard. Shouldn't the experience of living in the church, of being a Christian, of walking in the way of love, bring us more confidence? It says that it should. It says because the reason that we'd have more confidence is we were like him that would be Jesus in this world. That we were more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And I have this tendency, and I don't know if you have it, I have this tendency to, to, to look. There's, it's, either, it's never the same, you know? It's never like... I see my, you know, I'm, I'm going along exactly flat. You know, there's exactly the same amount of Jesus and the same amount of me. That's not the way it ever works. It's either going up or down all the time. I'm either becoming more like myself and less like Jesus or more like Jesus and less like myself. Or, as Paul would say, I must decrease that he might increase. I must display weakness that he might display strength. Last week, we have much sin. He has more grace this reality that we have in Jesus. And the more we live in that space, and I'm just exhorting us to contemplate the idea that we might be called to live in a more loving way that we might be more like him and therefore have more confidence on the day of judgment because we will surely all be judged, every one of us. Next marker here. I kind of mentioned it. 18, there's no fear in love. 
but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Now, I'll talk about this fear in two ways, right? The scriptures say that God is holy, perfect, beautiful. Proverbs says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that, that you rightly fear God, that I rightly have concerns about judgment, that, that I understand the dilemma I'm in, that I understand the situation that Noah was in, that the, I understand our brokenness and sin, my brokenness and sin. But here, in the middle of this passage about love, there's this mention of fear. There's no fear in love. Isn't that interesting? How many times would you, um, do you would, have you ever felt called to love someone but you're afraid? I told you two, uh, last week I said, I don't know where this is going. And that makes me uncomfortable. I want, I want Jesus to say, and here's where you're going to end up. And, and if I don't know that, I'm not going. But as you walk this out, is there fear in it? I don't know if there is for you. Maybe there's none. But for me, man, there's fear. Oh, if, if I, it's kind of like grace. If I love people too much, um, it might not go well. And oh, if I love people too much, I might be associated with them or they, they, they might believe what I believe, that I'm not better than them, that we're all in the same sin-filled boat, that, that we're all called to be holy, but we're not, you know? And I, I fear all that. And so rather, rather than risking that kind of um, association or brokenness or chastisement myself, I would rather draw a clear line and say, I'm in and you're out. You're coloring outside the lines, but I'm not. And brothers and sisters, that uh, mentality stinks of self-righteousness. I've been a Christian for 25 years. Look how I can stay in these lines. Maybe one day you will too. No, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Here it is, verse 19. Why do we love anyway? Our love is rooted in God's love because he first loved us. If you think that you're taking a risk by loving someone who's far from God, believe me, Jesus took far greater risk in loving you. The condescension of the eternal deity to come to earth, to dwell among us, and to give his life, and not just that, but to go to the Heavenly Father right now, sitting beside him, interceding, the word says, on our behalf, praying, Father, would you save them? Would you not curse them? Would you draw them to yourself? And not just that, but his promised Holy Spirit, that to all who believe that I will live in you, that my spirit is in you, and I will live through you, and I will transform you. And then people like the Apostle Paul who says, I am the worst sinner of all. There's no sinner worse than me, but I've been fully redeemed. I'm being transformed by Jesus. By his spirit. You see, the truth is that the marker of our love is rooted completely in the fact that God loved us first. Scripture says what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When he said to his disciples, um, as I have loved you, so you are called to love one another. Sinners, far from God. I'll let you read the rest of that. If you think I've been unfair with the context, I would love for you to come up and have a conversation. I'm not trying to abuse scripture, I guarantee. But man, I look at the church, I look at my own life, and I go, are, are we missing this? Are we missing this completely? What does it look like to love? How about you? After you interact with those, we'll start with brothers or sisters in the church. Huh. Do you look more forward or less forward to the day of judgment? <laughs> you know what I mean? Why did I treat my brother or sister that way? Does it grieve you? It grieves me. Do you feel the brokenness? I totally feel the brokenness in the church, man, in the people of God. And then dare we venture beyond the walls, man. Do we get outside where the God has called us into his kingdom? Do, do, do you experience that? 
dissonance, you know? After you interact, do you feel more or less encouraged for the day of judgment? I think for us, man, maybe not. Maybe it's just me. I think it's rooted in fear. It's rooted in fear and not fear of God. Not fear of his holiness, but fear of the things of this world. What will others think? I want to close with um, Paul's prayer for the church. Um, Lest we think this is all a John thing. You know, John, John, you know, the beloved disciple. Um, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Ephesians to check out Paul's prayer. It's Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, loving the church in Ephesus, having called them out of darkness into light, having preached the gospel, having seen the Spirit imparted among them, and having had a church start there, he writes to the church and he, he writes a prayer in the middle of his letter. This is my prayer for you. It says in verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he might strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Same idea we had, this indwelling spirit, the promised Holy Spirit living in us. Look what he says next. And I pray that you, church, Christians, being rooted and established in love, might have power together with all the saints. And I've talked to people in church world, and they love to have the power of God, man. They're like, I want the power of God, and I want the power of God to tell the future. I want the power of God to heal people. I want the power of God to speak truth. I want the power of God in all these things. We get caught up in the trappings. But I want you to see what Paul says. The power of God will be demonstrated. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, might have power together with all the saints to grasp or comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Isn't that a radical thing? That the power of God demonstrated through his spirit is for us to understand as his community how wide and deep and broad his love is. That blew me away. Paul's prayer for the church. Do you understand all you've been forgiven? Do you understand how much Jesus has paid? Do you understand the the power of his spirit to overcome sin, to triumph over sin? I think sometimes as Christians, we like to show how narrow and tight and short and shallow is the love of God. And if you're not in this little area, and then we bring a message that has no hope, no, how wide and deep and broad is the love of God. This is the power to the church. Again, like last week, what keeps us from proclaiming this to the world? Do you know how much God loves you? I talked to him to you earlier today about this whole idea, this concept of lions and creation and the rainbow. Man, I would love, and maybe this is my own prayer for myself, I would love to reclaim the rainbow for Christ. I would love to turn that message of political right, of division, of hate, of anger, of hurt, of pain into, do you even know how broad the love of God is? Do you even know how much he gave so that we might be free? We turn his eternal covenant into a bumper sticker and take sides. Man, God forgive us. Why aren't we doing that? The most world-renowned verse of Scripture is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's rooted and established. Man, that the promise 
that he made to not destroy it for the stench in the rainbow with Noah was you know, superseded by this ridiculous promise he's made in Jesus to not just not destroy us, but to love us and invite us in and include us and heal us and shape us and transform us and use us and then spend eternity with us, redeemed in new bodies, and we turn it into this little window. It's a beautiful offer, beautiful gift of God. Here's the question today. How is your love in your life, man? If you had to rate it on a scale, you know, and Jesus is here, and I'm over here. Where are we at? Where are you at? How full are you of this love that Jesus has demonstrated? Pray with me, if you will. Father God, for today, um, for the great uh, blessing of your love, for the way you've poured yourself out um, for us, we give you thanks and praise. We, we indeed you know, worship you because you saved us in love Father, today, I don't know where my brothers and sisters are here today, and I don't know where the folks who maybe just happen to be in the service today, maybe they just came and just were checking things out or whatever. I don't know where they're at with you, Father, but are we considering together, all of us, the, the breadth and the depth and the height and the length and the size and the scale and the glory of your love? Father, I pray that um, for those who've had your love lavished on us, who now love because you loved us, that we would begin to met out or measure our love to others in the same dispensable cup that you poured it upon us, that you would uh, uh, encourage us. If it's of you, I mean, if this is of you and if it's of your spirit, you would encourage us to live in this space that isn't afraid of the world, that isn't afraid of what others will think, that will live and love and risk and pay that we might know you more fully, that we might become more like you, and that we might um, look more forward to your day of justice and judgment, even over us. Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to do your work, and wherever we are in this walk with you, I, my only prayer is we take one more step with you, wherever you're leading, that each of us would have the courage in this room to take one more step toward you, toward your love and toward your truth. May you demonstrate, may you reveal that to each of us in our hearts, where you dwell. In Jesus' name, amen.